1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we touch a lot on British imperialism in this podcast. And in the stories we usually tell, those pertaining to India in particular, the British tend to dominate and seem like the most powerful governing force in the East Indies. But the story that we're going to tell today is about the island of Java, which is now part of Indonesia. And in the late 1700s, early 1800s or so, when our story begins,
0: it was actually controlled by the Dutch and their Dutch East India Company. So the Dutch had come to control most of the East Indies by this time, along with its very lucrative spice trade. That was kind of the main attraction. And they set up a monopoly system that prevented other European ships from even coming into the area. That's how important the spice trade was to them.
1: And the subject of this podcast, Sir Thomas Stanford Bingley Raffles, was one of the first to try to change all of that and to help the British Empire get more of a foothold in the East. Raffles is now best known as the founder of Singapore, but years before making a move into Singapore even entered his mind, Raffles successfully helped lead a mission to oust the Dutch from Java and ended up serving as lieutenant governor there for five years in a time known as the British Interregnum.
0: So today Raffles is kind of almost celebrated as a kind of hero, someone who was reform minded, who fought against slave trading in Southeast Asia. He was also a celebrated naturalist who discovered several species of plants and helped found the London Zoo. So he's got a very respectable resume. But during his lifetime, he wasn't always so well thought of by everyone. In fact, his time in Java basically ruined his reputation with the British East India Company because there was one important thing that mattered, and that was making money. So we're going to look at what happened there that would have such a ruinous result and how Raffles managed to salvage his career, actually have a successful career in spite of it.
1: But first, a little bit on Raffles' background, just because it makes what he did later even more surprising and impressive to me, at least. Raffles was born into a modest middle-class family. His father, whose name was Benjamin Raffles, was a merchant captain in the West Indies trade and Stanford Raffles was actually born on board his father's ship off the coast of Jamaica on July 6th, 1781 and Raffles is known as only having had a couple of years of formal schooling. He had to leave boarding school at age 14 because his family was having some serious financial trouble and at that time he got his first job with the British East India Company as a clerk.
0: Which sounds young, but I think that was kind of the norm. You would enter the Navy at a young age, and by extension, you'd enter like a trading company pretty young. But a couple years after he did that, his father died, and that put a lot of extra pressure on Raffles for having to support his mother and his four sisters completely on his own. But he didn't just, you know, get down to work and forget about everything that he was interested in himself. Even though he never resumed formal schooling, Raffles continued to study the sciences and several languages on his own. And that's, of course, where his interest in natural history started. It kind of reminds you a little bit of James Murray from our English Oxford English Dictionary episode, somebody who was really self-taught.
1: Yeah, and you remember how impressed we were by him. So when you see what Raffles accomplished, you'll kind of understand why we thought he would make a good podcast subject. So you'd imagine someone who has this much initiative would be pretty good at his job, too. And sure enough, by 1805, Raffles had impressed his superiors enough that they appointed him to be the assistant secretary for the new government of Penang in the East Indies. And as we mentioned, the Dutch had a pretty tight grip on the East Indies at this time. But the island of Penang was sort of on the periphery of their sphere of influence. And this was a British attempt to make their move, albeit very tentatively, into that region.
0: Go for something on the edges.
1: Yes. Yes. So before Raffles left for the East, he married a widow named Olivia Fancourt, and they set off together on this five-month sea journey to Penang. And this was no honeymoon cruise either. The conditions of the ship weren't great. They only made one stop in five months in Madras, so it's not like they were just lounging around, getting to stop Visiting at various exotic ports. places. Right. So, again not a good time, but Raffles managed to use his time wisely. He spent his time aboard the ship studying the Malay language, which was the major language of the area to which he was traveling. And his peers might have thought that this was a little weird, but Raffles seemed to have a natural knack for languages, and learning Malay happened to open up a whole new world for him. He was able to start reading Southeast Asian books, histories, literature, and so forth, and this gave him a better understanding of the Southeast Asian people.
0: Yeah, so when he got to Penang, his knowledge of Malay helped him converse with the locals, and they were pretty impressed and happy that he bothered to learn the language and that he could converse with them in their own language. I'm pretty impressed that he was able to self-teach himself so much on the ship with presumably just some books. I
1: know, and I mean, five months sounds go like and a...
0: converse with them fluently. Exactly.
1: I mean, five months sounds like a long time to be stuck on a ship,
0: but it's really not that long to learn a language. Exactly. So this... Is probably partly though, this ability to learn this language and then his ability to converse so readily might be partly why Raffles has a reputation for having sympathy for the locals because he could talk to them. He could hear their issues and get their point of view.
1: Yeah, and he gathered from talking to them, hey, these people are pretty smart. You know, they were probably stereotyped at the time by a lot of people coming over from other countries, a lot of foreigners, and he was able to kind of bridge that gap a little bit. And these qualities soon caught the attention of a Gilbert Elliot, better known as Lord Minto, the governor general of India, at a very crucial time.
0: Okay, so we mentioned that the British were already trying to get a bit of a foothold in the East Indies because of all the lucrative trading going on there. But certain events were taking place back in Europe that convinced them that this was the time to make a more significant move to go for it. So in the mid-1790s, Napoleon and his French Republican forces had invaded Holland, and that meant in the eyes of the British, all Dutch-controlled areas were now enemy territory. You know, they had a, a French connection.
1: So the British wanted to invade Java pretty much right away to keep it from becoming a Napoleonic power base. But for years, that was just kind of an idea, something that they were sort of talking about. And then finally, around 1810, Lord Minto got the orders from Britain to, quote, proceed to the conquest of Java at the earliest possible opportunity. Get on it, Lord Minto. So... Minto, who by this time had met Raffles and was not only impressed by his abilities, I mean, there weren't a lot of foreigners who were well-versed in Malay at this time, so he was pretty well-known for this skill. But he also really related to him, Lord Minto did. They seemed to have similar ideas about extending British influence in the East Indies and making reforms. So Lord Minto appointed Raffles to his staff and recruited him to participate in the attack on Java.
0: And that happened August 6, 1811. The British finally made their move. They arrived with a fleet of about 100 ships and 12,000 men near the Javanese city of Batavia. And they took that city without a struggle. Pretty much no struggle at all because it had been abandoned by the Dutch. And in fact, the British really didn't have any opposition at all at first. According to an article in History Today by Tim Hannigan, even though the Dutch had about 18,000 soldiers stationed in the area, they decided to just hang back, see what happened and hope that the British would start dying naturally. I mean, that sounds like they're kind of hoping for a lot there, but Batavia had a really fatal climate and uh, Westerners would get sick there, get catch fevers and get sick pretty easily, and that's probably one of the reasons why there weren't a lot of Dutch in the area in the first place. It worked to a certain extent. Some of the British did die of fever in the first few days, but most of them were able to press on further into the island, and by August 26, they were finally engaging the Dutch in battle.
1: According to Hannigan's article, the Dutch actually had an advantageous defensive position in this battle, but their defenses crumbled rather quickly. Mostly because a lot of the Dutch troops weren't committed to the Napoleonic
0: cause. That's a big problem.
1: Yeah, so when the British were rounding up prisoners, several of them even said you know, quote, I am no Frenchman, but a Dutchman. And they'd trample on the French emblems on their uniform. So they really did not want to be fighting for the French. By September 17th, the Dutch governor general had surrendered and the conquest of Java was complete.
0: So you'd think the British would, at this point, get to work setting up a new colony. You know, they bothered to go fight the Dutch in the first place. but And they had wanted to break into this area for so long. Right. But the British at least initially had no intention of hanging around at All Lord Minto's official orders were to drive out the Dutch, quote, destroy their fortifications, distribute their weapons and other supplies to the natives, and then evacuate all the British troops. It was basically get in there and then get the men out. So both Minto and Raffles had other ideas about Java. They didn't want to just immediately give up this place they had won. They thought it would be a mistake to abandon the area, and they had a vision of really turning it into some reformed, lucrative, promised land of sorts.
1: So they basically ignored their orders. Minto appointed Raffles, who was only 30 years old at this time, lieutenant governor of java and colonel rollo gillespie who had led the invasion was made commander of java's military forces so Minto returns to India at this point, and he tells the East India Company that he thought there might be serious consequences if they abandoned Java, and he promised that Java would at least pay for its own expenses. it's so
0: kind of justification for this move they've just
1: made. Yeah, it won't cost you anything, don't yeah. worry about it, it's good Don't no worry, a deal. I'll feed the dog. <laughs> right. In reality, though, the Dutch had left Java completely bankrupt. So one of Raffles' biggest challenges during the British Interregnum was to try to battle these economic problems. And he he was left to do this pretty much entirely on his own. So Raffles did a lot over the next five years. As we mentioned in the intro, nowadays he's mostly remembered for his reforms and attempted reforms. Most of these reforms were targeted toward changing the Dutch colonial system that was currently in place. He made reforms in taxation, for example, tried to abolish slavery and feudal dues, and we'll come back to those a little later and talk about them more. According to a 1981 lecture by Michael Stewart, who's actually a descendant of Raffles, which appeared in the journal Asian Affairs, Raffles also made some more radical reforms, like introducing trial by jury. He also tried to eradicate smallpox by vaccinating the
0: entire country, which is a rather modern idea. It is, and he worked hard, too. Nobody can deny that much. His hours were from 4 a.m., to 11 p.m. And not all of that time was spent with these grand social plans like eradicating smallpox. Part of the time was spent cataloging Java's history and its natural landscape. And with the help of engineers and surveyors, Raffles really explored the island's Indian and Islamic influences and relics and was planning on, when he came home or just at some point, writing a history of Java. But he also just really believed it was important for the British cause to examine all of this, to inquire into these areas. Uh, he was known to have said knowledge is power. Strangely enough, it reminds me a little bit of Napoleon and his invasion in Egypt. You know, part of it was military... Part of it was government-based, but there was also this huge scientific expedition going on, because he really believed that was important.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe that's not so much of a coincidence, because as we'll find out a little later, Raffles actually admired Napoleon. So all that stuff that we just mentioned, that was kind of the good stuff, the reform-minded stuff, the positive part of Raffles' experience in Java. But there were also a lot of controversial aspects of Raffles' time in Java, some of which seem to have been kind of glossed over throughout the years, probably because many of his other achievements were so laudable in hindsight. One questionable line you might see in brief biographies about him is that during his time in Java, he, quote, reduced the power of native princes. But what does that really mean? I had to wonder about that and, like, dig around a little bit to learn a little bit more about it. And Hannigan goes into it in a lot more detail in his History Today article. Apparently, the British had only been in Java about a year when Raffles decided they needed to teach the locals a little something about the power of the British government. I mean, if you want your reforms to take, I guess, you have to make sure that... Be an
0: authority figure. Right. Or establish yourself as one.
1: Exactly. You have to make sure that... The people you are reforming are paying attention. So, part of this lesson was just delivered through Raffles' demeanor. Java was broken up into several native kingdoms, and the courts of these kingdoms were run in a very formal way. For example, they spoke a very formal, high form of Javanese, which was considered the only language appropriate for conversing with kings. But on his first visit to Yogyakarta, which was one of the most significant native kingdoms, Raffles spoke Malay, which really affected the court because it was considered very uncultured.
0: He also did something that reminded me of a recent episode. He demanded to sit on the same level with the sultan, which was Unheard of. Uh, reminds me, of course, of Queen Njinga. Me too. <laughs> but even the Dutch had followed that standard protocol of, of sitting on different levels than the Sultan. But Raffles was trying to make a point when he came in about the British position there—that they were in charge, that his reforms were were worth making.
1: So Raffles waited a while to take military action. But by June twentieth, eighteen twelve, the British did attack Yogyakarta. And even though the natives outnumbered them, the British overcame them and destroyed much of their kingdom. According to Hannigan's article, the Javanese were very superstitious. Their thoughts about power were very closely tied to the supernatural. And in this battle, it almost seemed to them like the British had some sort of divine influence behind them or helping them. So
0: maybe this is part of why they were so caught off guard by the attack. Well, and what happened next surely emphasized that belief. Raffles exiled the sultan and took the court archive and his men looted the court and when the new sultan was crowned courtiers were made to kneel and kiss Raffles' knees uh, which doesn't really seem to fit that humanitarian image that he has now and and that we just help support too with some of his accomplishments. Right,
1: I mean it's the flip side of imperialism, right? We always sort of admire these adventures they go on and the wondrous things they do and they find out and all the learnings that they bring back but there's also this Really unsavory (laughs) side of it. That you. Knee kissing, rather. That's also something that needs to get out there. But so once Raffles had established British dominance, the British managed to set up a relatively functioning colonial society, but it wasn't exactly what he had wanted it to be. A lot of his reforms, for example, didn't exactly take. In particular, his efforts to abolish slavery, which we mentioned before, were pretty much unsuccessful. They did ban the import of slaves and shut down the slave trading outpost at Batavia, but feudal bondage was so ingrained in the economy and society there, Raffles couldn't get rid of it entirely. And as Hill and Wood writes in an article for the Journal of Early Modern Cultural Studies regarding Raffles' intentions to get rid of the custom of bondage, quote, his grand schemes remained mostly on the page. So he wrote of this a lot. He wanted to do it, but in practice, at least it in Java, happening. it wasn't happening.
0: Okay, so we alluded to a problem back home, though, with Britain when we were introducing this subject. The most controversial aspect of Raffles' time in Java, at least from the British perspective was his failure to get it out of financial trouble and make it profitable. Remember that was one of the things that was promised initially, at least Java will pay for itself. Don't worry about that part. So Raffles tried to reform the land revenue system and replace it with a system similar to that used in India in which farmers would pay rents based on the value of their land instead of their crops. He was hoping that this would finally get some cash flowing through the country, but it wasn't executed. The plan wasn't executed properly, and it failed, which was pretty bad news for Raffles. It was sort of his last go at trying to make the island economically stable, and after it failed, he really had to face the music.
1: Yeah, to make matters worse, in 1813, Gillespie, who, as you'll remember, was his military commander, had returned to England and filed formal charges, 17 charges in fact, of corruption and incompetence against raffles. They had never gotten along, Gillespie and Raffles, that is, and were apparently always at each other's throats. So that might have fueled Gillespie's actions a little bit. It had
0: to sting a bit, though, to hear that you had all these charges filed against you back in England.
1: Yes, but Raffles also didn't really have a lot of positive financial results with which to defend himself. And Lord Minto had been replaced by a new governor general in India, so he didn't have his buddy anymore. He didn't have anyone in the East to lobby for his cause. And by the end of 1815, Britain had even less reason to try to hang on to Java. The Napoleonic Wars had ended, and Britain decided to return Holland's territories. But before they could even do that, before they could even make the handoff, Raffles was fired from his post. So they didn't
0: even keep him around for for that short amount of time. I think it
1: was a difference of like eight months or something.
0: Alright, so Raffles after this disgrace left for England on March 25th, 1816 with his reputation just completely tarnished and on top of that his wife Olivia had died in 1814 which had really devastated him and his health had begun to go south too. So At that point, it seems like, you know, this would be the sad end of the podcast. He seems pretty down on his luck. But things turn around for him in a remarkable way once he gets back to England. Um, Although we we before he gets back to England, we should know, Dublina did mention Napoleon. On the way back to England, Raffles actually got to meet Napoleon, who he had previously admired. He'd been kind of a famous military leader to look up to. But when he actually met the man, he didn't really like Napoleon very much. According to that lecture in Asian Affairs that we mentioned, Raffles wrote to a friend, quote, Believe me, this man is a monster. I saw in him a man determined and vindictive, without one spark of soul, but possessing capabilities to and talents to enslave mankind. Harsh words. Yes, indeed. He published his
1: History of Java in 1817, which became a standard work on the subject. And the Prince Regent liked it so much he summoned Raffles to be knighted after he finished reading it, which is how he became, of course, Sir Stamford Raffles. So
0: all of that work he was doing on history and natural science really paid off, since this book seems like it was his his in back into favor.
1: It was, and after that he got married again to a woman named Sophia, and they soon set sail again for the East, the Time to and Kulin on the west coast of Sumatra. And this was the one post that Britain had retained throughout the years when the Dutch dominated the East Indies, and he served there as lieutenant governor for about eight or nine years. So, we don't want to go too much into his work after that, since the focus of this was really Java. But essentially, after returning to the east, it wasn't long before Raffles started looking for another port that would put the British in a position to rival the Dutch. So, he still kind of focused on this idea. He's got it
0: on his mind. So he set his sights on Singapore, of course, and realized that it was in the ideal position to create a successful trade rivalry. And he got permission from the then governor general of India, Lord Hastings, to, to do so, to try to set something up in Singapore. But when Raffles got to Singapore, he found that the sultan there had already signed a treaty with the Dutch. So it seemed like, uh-oh, he got there too late. But. With a little bit of investigation, Raffles also found that the sultan the Dutch had signed a treaty with was the younger of two sons of the previous sultan, who had basically usurped the throne when his big brother was out of town. So what did Raffles do with this little family situation going on? He went and found the big brother, brought him back to the island, and helped him take back his rightful position. After that, of course, the new sultan, probably pretty grateful to Raffles for helping restore him entered into a treaty with the British and Raffles founded and established a settlement at Singapore.
1: Raffles didn't stay long, though. He knew with his reputation and failure at Java that the East India Company officials wouldn't trust anything that he was too involved with and he didn't want to damage the chances that Singapore would get to be an established colony. So he left instructions on how it should be set up and then returned to Ben Kulin. In the intervening years, he had four kids, and he made several botanical discoveries, continuing that focus of his on natural history. Among the most famous of these discoveries he made was the largest flower in the world, at least it was at the time, I'm not sure if it still is, and it was named appropriately the Rafflesia Arnaldi, and it measured a yard across from petal to petal, but probably isn't something that you'd want to have in your house. It supposedly smells like rotten meat to attract to the carrion flies that allow it to propagate.
0: I'm wondering if a few years ago, the Atlanta Botanical Gardens had one of these. I know they they were advertising some sort of stinky, rotten meat flower. Really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many how many there are in the world, but it just brings
1: little shop horrors to mind it for does. me. Audrey too. Yes, but in addition to plants, he also had a love for exotic animals, which we also cover these exotic pet owners from time to time with our Historical Pets podcast. And he kept pets like an elephant, monkeys, and tiger cubs. His kids supposedly had a. Re- live Winnie the Pooh in their nursery.
0: Oh, But the end of Raffles' life was marked by tragedy. Um, You thought you were going to get away from that Mm -hmm. (laughs) earlier in the episode. In the early 1820s, three of his four children fell ill and died. Uh, Raffles and his wife were in pretty ill health, too, and so they started to prepare to return to England. Before coming back, though, Raffles spent a few more months in Singapore doing city planning, preparing laws, a constitution, and establishing a Malay school among other things. So really trying to set things um, in order the way he liked them before he left. But on his journey back to England in 1824, he brought, of course, all of his life's work with him, all of the records, the papers, manuscripts, the books he was working on, dictionaries he had written of several languages, and all of those natural history collections. But there was a fire on board the ship, and a lot of these collections and records were lost. And
1: when Raffles got back, he went to the East India Company and he asked them for a pension to offset his losses from the fire. But they sort of turned the tables on him and said that he owed them money to repay salaries and expenses that he'd incurred back east, 22,000 pounds to be exact. He didn't live long after this, though. So even though he was going to have to try to come up with a plan to pay it back, I don't think he ever actually had to. His health was getting much worse. He had been suffering headaches ever since he had been for years now, since he he was in Vinkulin, and he died July fifth, 1826, at the age of 44. The autopsy showed that he'd had a brain tumor, so that's why he had been having those headaches, even though at the time the doctors thought it was something to do with his liver, I think. He was denied a plaque on his tomb because he had opposed slavery, and the vicar of the Hendon Parish, where he was buried, owned an interest in a West Indian plantation.
0: There is one good thing, though. Uh, Right before he died, he helped establish the London Zoological Society and the London Zoo, and was the zoo's first president. So if you've ever visited that zoo, you can... Think of Raffles a bit.
1: Yeah, so with all that he did in Singapore and his accomplishments in natural history, it's clear to see why Raffles is mostly remembered for his positive accomplishments. He did a lot, and he did do a lot to sort of further the British Empire in the East, but java wasn't a total loss either after the dutch took over again in 1816 they actually ended up adopting a lot of raffles reforms including his basic idea about land rents which had been such a disaster when raffles tried it so for better or for worse he really did sort of lay the groundwork for colonial culture there so like a lot of characters in these episodes that we do about imperialist topics, he's a very gray sort of character. Although he is celebrated as a hero, he definitely has some things in his past that weren't necessarily that glowing. But just so we don't have to end this episode on kind of a down note, let's go to Lister Mail. <laughs> So we mentioned our WC Minor podcast a little earlier in this episode, and we have a letter from Sally here, and she has a little personal dictionary drama to share with us. She says, hey, Sarah and Dublina Uh, I usually listen to your podcast while riding the tube into school. I'm an American studying in London, but I had returned to the States for Christmas and my parents' anniversary. I was grateful that I am quick on downloading your podcast because your WC minor podcast kept me highly entertained in the emergency room and even distracted me from the pain. The reason I was in the ER was because while helping my brother put some books away, he knocked a copy of the Greater Oxford English Dictionary onto my foot. It fell from the top of a fairly tall bookshelf, so we thought that it might have broken my foot. Thankfully it didn't, but I was enjoying the irony of the situation so much that the nurses kept checking if I was on morphine. I wasn't. When I got home and my parents asked what happened, I told them that that crazy WC minor came and pushed his work onto my foot. While I am known in my family for quirky remarks like that, my parents insisted I go up to bed. I guess if you're chalking up victims of WC Minor, you can count the poor brewery worker and one foot.
0: Oh, dear. That is the last book that you want to fall on your foot.
1: Yeah, that's pretty unlucky.
0: Yeah. Sally, you're lucky that it just didn't hit your head.
1: Yeah. I'm and glad your foot's okay. <laughs> I'm glad we were able to keep you entertained while you were in the ER. Perfect timing. And thanks for sharing your story. If you have any personal stories, hopefully not that tragic to share with us regarding podcasts, please write us. We're now at at discovery.com not the old howstuffworks.com address anymore. Discovery. We have switched over. We
0: have migrated. We are, however, still at Mist in History on Twitter and we are on Facebook, which are both classic ways to contact us.
1: And if you're interested, as we are, in learning a little bit more about this phenomenon of people being able to learn languages very easily, we have a lot of articles about language learning in the culture section of our website, including articles that address whether young folks learn languages more easily than older ones and, um, and so forth. So if you want to look up a little more about that, you can do that by visiting our homepage. We're at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, "Stuff from the Future." Join House Stuff Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.
1: The House Stuff Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.